You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. I'm speaking with Alistair Reynolds. His new Doctor Who novel is Harvest of Time. Thanks for joining me, Al. Hi, Rick. So, Doctor Who, tell us about your entree into this, because I have a whole collection of these skinny little uh, Terence Dix paperbacks. Did you? I did. They were, they were, to some extent, my entry into the gateway of novels, I suppose, because I, w- I would argue that when I, when I was reading um, in, in the sort of early to mid-1970s, there wasn't really uh, a, a subgenre of young adult as such. There were there were children's books, and then there were adult books, and there wasn't an awful lot in between. And you sort of found you found that bridge as you could. And for me, um, novelizations of all stripes were were the sort of the the bridge I used to get from reading. En- you know, Enid Blyton is the the classic example in Britain. Also, Roald Dahl, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, books like that. That was what I was reading. I was reading Roald Dahl, Enid Blyton. Thomas the Tank Engine books, and then I moved sort of seamlessly into reading sort of 2001 A Space Odyssey, purely because um, of, of sort of film and TV novelizations, um, mm-hmm. and the, the Doctor Who novelizations were a huge part of that. Um, and you, you can't overstate the importance of those books, because this is a point where you could, the, Doctor Who was not shown, was not repeated on television. Much of it had been destroyed. There were no video recorders. So to, to grow up in the 1970s and know that Doctor Who had already been on television for 10 years, there was you know, hundreds of hours of previous Doctor Whos that you would never see. How do you get back into those adventures? Well, you read the books. And that, that seemed, you know, it seemed a very, very good trade-off. For me, it was as good as seeing them again. Um, and I, I, I loved them, and I read them uh, avidly. They were my way of connecting with the earlier doctors, with Patrick Troughton and Hartnell, and also the earlier, um, the earlier stories in the John Pertwee seasons that I didn't remember from when they were on television. So I read those avidly, and I kept them. I must have had, um, you know, I had a whole shelf of them. And then, probably less than ten years ago, um, I sent them all away to a friend in New Zealand because his son was becoming an avid Doctor Who fan. So I gave them all away. Doctor Who, and uh, your point about the novelizations is so true because I remember as a kid reading the James Blish novelizations ah, yes, yeah. of the Star Trek, yeah, uh, yeah. the original series, yeah. and that just, I went seamlessly from that to Well, you know, I, I won't knock novelizations because um, I also read, I read Alan Dean Foster's Star Wars, which was, you know, when, when you got the original paperback, it said Star Wars by George Lucas. It wasn't until later issues that it said Alan Dean Foster. And then I, then I read uh, Splinter of a Mind's Eye, which was the authorised sequel to Star Wars. And the story with that, which was by Alan Dean Foster, apparently the story is that they weren't sure if Star Wars was going to be a hit or not. So they, they, they commissioned a script which could be made on a relatively low budget. That, that, would be, that would have been the second Star Wars film had Star Wars not been a mega hit. But I also read, um, I mean, Alan Dean Foster was the guy, wasn't he? Because he, he did, sure. I think he did the novelization for Alien. He did the novelization for Black Hole. Um, the John Carpenter movie with the, with the beach ball alien. 
Dark Star. Yeah, Dark I read that Star. one. <laughs> I, um, that. I read. Yeah, I read all. I read like. Um, I read the Six Million Dollar Man novelizations when that was huge in the seventies. I read Space Nineteen Ninety Nine by Brian Ball. Um, so I just read them avidly, and they were, you know, after a while you realise. I think you read these things thinking that they're going to be. Well, some of them were authentic novelizations or ad- adaptations of TV shows, but others were stories made up in that universe, but which never got, never became part of the canon. Mm-hmm. And I was always slightly disappointed when I realised that actually the, what, that that is never actually going to be an episode of Space Nineteen Ninety Nine. But the uh, the Doctor Who books were all they were all canonical, weren't they? They were they were all based on actual episodes, and I, and I read them all. Now you, Doctor Who is a huge hit now, mm. and but um, to go, but when you, your book, is not set in the current Doctor Who That's universe, correct. and I thought that was a such a great decision. I read as I started reading, that, I go, oh wow! So talk about that decision well, to write a it, retro science fiction. Novel. Well, it was sort of um, I always say it was forced on me, but that was the sort of direction I was pushed gently was. Really? Uh, and this was, I can honestly say this was one of the best days of my life because I was in Florida uh, on my way to Kennedy Space Center to collect tickets to see the launch of the Space Shuttle Atlantis a day later. You had to go, you had to go there and get the tickets the day before the launch. So I, I was on my way there and I got a message on my mobile phone and it was uh, from my agent. I was actually, I'm lying, it was an email. I was checking my email in the hotel lobby and it said, uh, subject, Doctor Who. And I thought, whatever that is, whatever he's asking me, it's interesting because I'd been an avid Doctor Who fan for, you know, virtually my whole life. And I'd always wanted desperately to, to be involved in Doctor Who on some level, but I never wanted to go groveling. I just wanted it to, if it happens, it happens. You know, it's just, I'm, I'm a firm believer in that. You know, just let life make these choices for you. Mm-hmm. And... So I open this email from my agent. He says something like, um, um, BBC are launching a new line of Doctor Who books. Would you by any chance be interested? And my, my attitude was something like, right, where do I sign? Because I'm, do, I'm doing this. <laughs> then we got into um, more detailed discussions. And it turned out that they were, they were launching, um, relaunching the Doctor Who books, hoping to bring in writers who didn't have a previous association with, with Doctor Who fiction. And they were very interested in getting writers to write for the earlier Doctor Who's. So it wasn't forbidden that I would write for one of the contemporary doctors, but they were kind of keen that I would do one of the earlier ones. And I said, I was like, well, I, I'm absolutely adamant that I want to write John Pertwee. This is not up for debate. <laughs> yeah, uh, no, so I, said, I, said, I, I said, John Pertwee with Joe Grant and the Brigadier and the Master, <laughs> or it's not happening. But it was... No problem at all. I mean, they, they'd approached a number of other writers and some of them had said, well, I'd like to do this doctor or that doctor. And no no one so far had bagged John Pertwee. So for me, it was, you know, absolutely uh, perfect. Well, and, it, you know, I, that was it. It was not, not a question of me feeling, oh, okay, I'll do this one. No, it was like, that's it. That's the doctor I want to write. Well, one of the things when you read that book is to read. I can tell you must have had a lot of fun writing that one. It, yeah, it was fun. It was a lot of fun. It was more... Um, more work than I thought it would be and I'll tell you I, I had um, we spent a long time thinking up the story mm-hmm. because I had to write a fairly detailed synopsis which would be passed to the production team in Cardiff who would then 
give it the nod, whether they felt it was okay. Creative? Yeah. Really? That's why they make it, yeah. yeah. <laughs> all right. um, and I had a few ideas and we batted a few back and I cooled on some of my own ideas, but it was about a year this whole process took. But that was fine, it was not, there was no rush because mm -hmm. the book wasn't gonna come out for a while and um, I couldn't start work on it anyway for, for, for a period. But um, by the time I actually, you know, by the time the contract was inked and I was ready to start the book, I'd really felt, thought that story through in detail. I thought, I know it. I know every twist of that story. And I had a trip to um, Dubai, which was, uh, say, the middle of March for a couple of days. And then almost exactly a month later, I had a trip to Japan. I thought, well, that's four weeks. Um, it's, um, say, um, I can't remember how many words it was, but say, say it was like, 70,000 words. Well, if I do um, 15 to 20,000 words a week, I can do this in four weeks. I can write the Doctor Who book and hand it in between these two trips. And I genuinely felt that was achievable. But in the end, it took four months. <laughs> it took four times as long to write it as I thought it would. Well, one of the things that I think you really uh, get, get in this book is you really have a lot of fun with all the characters. They just really come to life and I'd like you to talk about writing about characters that you've lived with for so long as a you know as a viewer and a reader. I came into it with one advantage which is that I'm not um, an absolute obsessive Doctor Who fan. Mm -hmm. I'm, I like Doctor Who, I love Doctor Who. There's very, very many happy associations for me. But I'm not an obsessive to the point where, if you told me, um, if you asked me, where does your story sit between um, the Sea Devils and Day of the Dalek? I, I couldn't tell you. I, do they, you know, I, I genuinely couldn't tell you which one happens first. Mm -hmm. and Because I'm not invested in it on that level. And the other problem I had was, or well, actually, I, I, I don't think it was a problem. It just freed me up, was mm -hmm. that by the time you get down into the secondary characters like Benton, and uh, Yates, I couldn't, I couldn't tell which was which. So I had to watch Doctor Who and remind myself, okay, that one's Benton and that one's Yates. Okay, and he's the boss of him. And so, so I, I, I wasn't coming into it with a really encyclopedic knowledge of the whole thing. Mm -hmm. And I also didn't remember when certain characters left the show. Mm -hmm. So I'd written, um, a, there was a bit of dialogue where my, my editor was an absolute star because he really knew it on a level where he could immediately pick up on a glitch so I'd say, I'd have a character refer to some monster, he said, no, he wouldn't know that because he wasn't in the show at that point. You know? mm -hmm. So I had that authority looking over my shoulder the whole time I was writing it. Well, it sounds but, like the kind, you had a, a perfect combination of uh, creative imagination. Your imagination wasn't already locked in by what you already knew. No, but I think that could be a, really, really yeah. um, stifling if you know too much. Right, right. Uh, but on it, the other hand, you had somebody there to, as it were, fact check. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. And, and But it was also, they were also quite, um, more so at the beginning, they said something like, don't worry about being slavishly consistent. We're not trying to slot this story into any pre-existing chronology. And I said, mm -hmm. okay, that's fine. But in fact, when, it, when, when we got into the nitty-gritty of the editing, I think they did try and, um, particularly near the end, where in the first draft, the master escapes at the end of the book. Mm -hmm. And they said, they said um, well, if you have him captured, then it would slot neatly between these two stories because he's captured at the beginning and he's captured at the end. Mm -hmm. So then it can, you know, the fans will see that it sort of fits 
unobtrusively into the existing. So it, it, it was an easy change to make. You know, it was just a, you know, half an hour's work, and I had the master captured rather than a lamp. <laughs> yeah. And that, that's fine because then it sort of doesn't create an anomaly in terms of the. the but I but I needed someone to pick me up on stuff like that because I don't I don't know it on that level. What I know about Doctor Who is just being terrified of it. Uh, liking the music liking the characters Uh um, and I say a strong emotional connection to Doctor Who chocolate when I was little (laughs) which may be the whole you know maybe it's the endorphins or something but um, but I don't I'm not yeah there's levels of fandom out there I mean I I regard myself as a fan of Doctor Who but I'm not uh, I don't have an encyclopedic knowledge of it by any means well that uh, that I think played to your advantage and I think too um, one of the things that really interested me about this book is, is it's a science fiction novel set in the past. Yes. And I, that is something I find, I, I think we need more of that. Well, I hadn't, you know, you, you kind of stuck with the, um, the property, aren't you? Because it is, sure. it is the third Doctor. <laughs> There's a bit of anomaly because he was active on television between 1970 and 1974. But the... Back, you know, it, it's kind of suggested that it's all taking place in the future, mm-hmm. because you have um, a British space program, <laughs> more than one British. T- you have BBC Three, I think. Is you know, it, some people say it kind of all makes sense if it was set ten years in the future, uh-huh. right? And I think yeah, you can get that because they have an independent British space program. Mm-hmm. Um, so I said, well, you know, when I when I write the book, I'm just going to kind of tacitly assume it's about 1980. Mm-hmm. That's why. I was able to get sort of desktop computers into it, or, right. which I you would you never t- have had in 1972. But I thought by 1980, they were starting to creep in, weren't they? Mm-hmm. That's my very general take on it. Well, I thought you did a great job with that, of like dealing with the characters' perceptions of a technology that's alien to them, and kind of like weirdly futuristic to them, but utterly like, but you know years old to us and that's yeah. really fun to read yeah oh good oh good yeah yeah but it is it is fun to play with um the period period sort of feel of it well and also too you mentioned being terrified of doctor who and one of the things that um doctor who always did really well was monsters and you have to, there's i think horror themes and horror tropes run through all of your fiction uh yeah definitely um it's yeah, it just sort of seems to come out whether I want it to or not, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I like coming up with monsters and sort of horrible things. Well, I, I mean, you could say like Blue Remembered Earth sure. is an attempt to go against the grain of that. And I think um, I tried to keep the, um, you know, the, the art, there's, there's very little violence in Blue Remembered Earth, which was mm-hmm. an intentional artistic choice. There's, there's violence in On the Steel Breeze, but it's sort of off-stage violence. It's sort of like spaceships blowing up in the distance. Mm-hmm. But again, there's very little on-screen violence. There's no mutilation. There's no, not, no, a, lot, not it, a lot of blood no, flying around. No, but I think even in those books, there's like kind of creepy scenes of robots and, yeah. and yeah. you know, your, your descriptions of like uh, ships with tentacles dragging down on the ground. I mean, oh, yeah. you you're, yeah. you can just describe something that the characters take as everyday and normal in a manner that we readers here in the present find somewhat creepy. Yeah, <laughs> and sometimes I don't. I suppose I don't. I'm not even sure I'm doing it. You know, uh-huh. so, you know. Often um, you kind of yeah, 
you think you've written something a bit creepy and then readers will go, wow, wow, that was so creepy. Oh, was it? Oh, okay. Um, oh, good. <laughs> well, but then I, some, uh, the other downside is you'll write stuff. You think, oh, they're going to love this. It's so creepy and no one, no one ever mentions it. So, oh, okay. <laughs> well, I, I thought you did a great job with the monsters and Doctor Who. So yeah. talk about dealing with the slit. Um, I had... Um, uh, the sealed, the sealed. sealed. Get it, get it right. Get yeah. it right. That's so. vitally important. <laughs> uh, I, I, when I was a student, um, I, I used to live next to a supermarket, and uh, I'd often wander around the aisles looking at the, the, <laughs> the food I was going to eat for the night. And I noticed. I mean, this like goes back thirty years. I noticed there was a type of processed fish, or fish in a tin, called sealed. And I always thought sealed. What a great name for an alien species. I'll use that one day. <laughs> so when, when, um, when it came, to, you know time to do the book I uh, by the time I knew I wanted to do my own alien species they, they were going to be the celled and I thought you know every conceivable type of monster has been done in Doctor Who already mm -hmm. there's nothing that hasn't been done so you're always working against that tradition and you can't you can't come up with anything wholly original I don't think um, but I thought, what, what, what did we never see in Doctor Who? And that, we never saw more than three monsters at a time, because <laughs> it was just not possible to have more. Than, it was there were never more than three Cybermen, never more than three Daleks, simply because of the budget. So what, what you tended to get was a small number of impressive, formidable monsters. I thought, what about a large number of rather pathetic monsters that are e easily destroyed, pose no individual threat, but on mass they're they're a problem. So that's where the, I thought, you know, that's where the sealed come in. That they, um, you can easily deal with one or two of them. You can just crush them under your feet, steam, you know, drive over them with your jeep, and they, they're dead. <laughs> and they don't even have weapons. But it's when they, um, when they, you know, when they come in more than one or two, and suddenly you lose control of one of them, then you're in deep trouble. Well, I I thought you did a good job of that, and also of, you know, using uh, turning by virtue of the way you describe the monster you bring out the monstrousness that's in humans that's probably in excess of anything that we're ever going to encounter beyond our own sphere yeah it, it, i mean i i wouldn't over intellectualize something that was just no. it was just fun you know and it, and i i thought what what would be because these sealed are sort of robot crabs, but there's a little organism floating. I thought, what would be the cutest thing? <laughs> Seahorses. Sea everyone loves seahorses. What if they're? What if these aliens are like really horrible, but they look like seahorses, but they're just really vicious and nasty? But it, that that was the level of intellectual depth that was going on there, you know. <laughs> well, well, Doctor Who is also himself. You do a good job of you. It's really fun to see the Master and the Doctor Who and the Brigadier and all these other characters. <laughs> On the page, and I think you do a, have do a lot of fun of giving them just a, you know enough, you know presence, but not too much presence. Did you find yourself having to pull back as a writer? I found um, the I I watched a lot of Doctor Who um, on DVD. See all my Doctor Who DVDs there. Wow. Um, yes. And I watched a lot of the John Pertwee ones in the run up to writing the book, and I was sort of taking mental notes, and I even. Even when I'd finished the book, there were still a few of the Pertwees that I hadn't seen. Mm -hmm. And there's still one that I haven't seen because I haven't had it, never seen it on DVD. Um, but I was making, taking mental notes. And there was some, I mean, I felt, I, I, I kind of felt right from the start. I thought, I know how the Doctor speaks and acts in any given situation. The Master, I think, pretty, I'm pretty sure I can do the Master. Um, by the time you got to the Brigadier, I thought, well, I know the Brigadier 
I know what he looks like, but what does he say? What are the what are his typical mannerisms? So then you sort of watch, you watch the program with an eye to that sort of thing, and you just take in sort of little mental notes about the type of thing the brigadier would do or say in a given situation. The same with Joe Grant and, and the other characters, but the master and the doctor, I I every time I got them together, um, it was magic. I mean, it was just effortless. I just really enjoyed writing the scenes <laughs> when, they, when they were together. Well, it, it's a lot of fun. Now, you know, this makes me think. Um, we've seen, you know, here you are novelizing or kind of right playing in the Doctor Who universe. Do you think you're going to go back to that? Or do you have plans to that? Or I, I don't have plans. I mean, the sort of, uh, you know, the book did well enough that they they're sort of amenable to me doing another one, mm -hmm. um, which I, I like. I like the idea of it, but I also would need to be sure that it was the right thing to do. Mm -hmm. And I wouldn't want to do another John Pertwee master story. I mean, I, I would want to do a different permutation for the, for the next one. Um, you know, maybe Tom Baker mm -hmm. with with Leela, maybe. You know, I mean, yeah, Tom Baker and Leela was a great combination. Yeah, it would, I, I really liked Tom Baker's Doctor Who, but it was... I think the last time I was really terrified would probably be with, with under Pertwee, you mm -hmm. know. But um, but it it would be um, I mean maybe you know I, I I wouldn't count on doing another one. Um, but um, but by far the hardest thing would be finding time because it it was as I said it it was more work than I thought it would be. I mean it was enjoyable work. It was there was never a day where I wasn't you know blessing the fact that I was writing a Doctor Who story. But even you know a relatively short novel, so eighty thousand words. I think it, contractually it was eighty thousand words, but it was a hundred by the time I'd finished it. Um, it's it's a lot of work, you know. Were well, you writing that at the same time as, an, yeah, as something else? Was, as Steel um, Breeze. I, I wrote a um, hundred thousand words of Steel Breeze. Then I put that aside, wrote the Doctor Who book pretty much without interruption. Then I returned to Steel Breeze, and it had died on me. I mean the, the, that break away from the book had been fatal I, I couldn't reinvest myself in Steel Breeze so I had to basically throw out the previous 100,000 words work on, on Steel Breeze Restart it? Yeah, really? oh yeah yeah, yeah. That, that was terrible and I, I think it was probably I mean there, were, there was probably something wrong with it but certainly taking a three month, three, four month holiday from the book and then trying to get back into it didn't help mm. you know. Now Doctor Who's uh, TV series and I'm wondering if you wanted to talk about, you know, getting some of your stuff up on the screen. Is it going to happen? When? I, I don't think... Um, when, I, when I was first approached about writing the book, I thought, well, that'd be... You know, who knows? Maybe there's a chance that that might lead on to something. And if it did, that would be wonderful. Um, because I, I, you know, I'd love to try my hand at writing uh, for television. That hasn't happened. I mean, there's been no overtures in that direction mm -hmm. um, and I think now I'm minded to think I had a great time <laughs> it was overwhelmingly positive experience leave it at that you've had a good you've had a good fun dabble in mm -hmm. the Doctor Who universe um, why not just leave it at that well what about your other books um, could you talk about uh, the adaptations of uh, Revelation Space or well, some of the other work there's been uh, you know, I, I'm, what will be, 14 years since Revelation Space came out. Mm -hmm. There's never been a time where there hasn't been some interest from some quarter in filming that book. But it nothing's ever come of it. And 
all I can say is that there seems to be a bit more interest each year and a bit a bit more serious interest you know there's some proper um, clued up people um, sniffing around it now and that you know that's sort of encouraging but whether that whether anything will come to that come of that I, 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 I doubt it um, just just on past experience I'm sort of a little bit skeptical but there seems to be a little bit more interest all the time and uh, I suppose that's just the way it goes I mean I, I just take a very detached view of this because I am the reason I'm a writer of science fiction is because I wanted to be a writer prose fiction mm-hmm. for me that's the only thing that lights up a particular part of my brain it's it's words on a paper um, words on a page if I wanted to be a filmmaker if I wanted to be involved in filmmaking I like to think that's what I would have done mm-hmm. I would have gone into filmmaking if it was my ultimate ambition to be involved in science fiction cinema I would already be involved in science fiction cinema so as much as I would like it to happen um, it's genuinely not something that really sort of plays on my thoughts all the time it's more um, yeah it'd be nice but it'll be a lot of work you know and in the meantime I'm not you know I'm not short of projects and ideas that are purely the written word I mean that's that's um, you know there's, there's more than enough to be going on with well now you you've just about finished the sequel to this trilogy yes the case and yeah. do we know the title can you tell us no I, I if I if I knew the title I'd tell you now um, I'm I've got about three or four candidate titles in my head, but I've not spoken to anyone about them, oh. and I'm not really sold on any of them at the moment. Um, I'm, I'm I'm very wary about titles. How do, you, how do you choose titles? I mean, well, sometimes you kind of know the title already. You know the title even before you go into the book, mm-hmm. and it's just you never doubt it. You never have a second title that's anything better than the first one, and and it's nice when that happens. Sometimes the title comes to you halfway through the book. Sometimes. You know, the night you finish it, sometimes you don't even know the title then. You know, and you hope that <laughs> between you and your editor, you can come up with something. And I, I you know, I don't really, um, I'm not sure if it's any reflection on the book, um, if it says anything about the quality of the book, knowing the title in advance. And certainly, this one, I don't know the title. I mean, I've got it. it, it it's not feeling. Like a particular handicap, not knowing the title at this point, <laughs> should we say? <laughs> My books are always book eleven, book twelve, book three, book four until I finished it. You know, um, even the Doctor Who book, um, it was just Doctor Who novel. That was my working title for it until I finished it. And uh, do you have anything else you're working on at the moment? Um, I'm. There's a. F- I've, I've had a busy year, and I've. I've I wrote. Um, a, a novel, a long novel. A sh- sorry. A, a, a short novel <laughs> or a long novella which is finished but I still have to do the editing on it and that that's coming out from Tachyon Press next year and that's called Slow Bullets and that's uh, completely uh, totally unrelated to anything I've ever done um, but it's uh, it's another story set in space but it's um, just one of those ideas that sort of been you know in the back of my mind for a, for a few years I had to get down on paper so I'm, I'm pleased with that and uh, see what the world thinks of it uh, I had a story come out this week in, in subterranean online which I which uh, again I worked on that for most of last year so I'm, I'm glad to see it finally finished um, any number of other projects sort of germinating waiting for me to just find a bit of time to work on them um, I've got um, a major collaborative novel coming up soon which uh, I, I'm working with another writer say no more 
because we've made no public announcement of it, but we're going to be writing a collaborative novel uh, probably over the next sort of six to eight months. Once that's in the can, um, I have my own novel to write for, you know, as part of my normal contracted contractual work, which will be every book I write, uh, I sort of feel that it's a reaction against the last book. Well, this will be a reaction against the trilogy. Not, not that I'm in any way sick of the trilogy, but it, you know, you, you, I feel like a change of pace and a change of scene. Um, so it'll be something different. It'll probably be a space opera of some sort, but it'll be significantly, I, I, you know, um, probably a, a lot more fun, I suppose. <laughs> not that the, not that it hasn't been fun, but it'll be more, um, I suppose, more over the top. Yeah. Well, we'll look forward yeah. to, to your over-the-top novel. I've been speaking yeah. with Alistair Reynolds. His newest Doctor Who novel is... Harvest of Time. Thank you for joining me, Al. Thank you, Rick. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.